were now our great, or one of our great forefathers in the faith, Martin Luther, didn't like the letter of James. He called it an epistle of straw, a letter of straw. Didn't like it at all. And that was because James puts great emphasis on the outworking of Christian discipleship and balances the more internal spiritual teaching we find in Paul's uh, writing. You see, Luther had spent a whole lifetime trying to make himself right with God. Penance after penance, mortification after mortification, but it brought him no peace at all. And then it dawned on him that it wasn't what we do for God that makes us right with him. It's what he has done for us. We are justified by faith. Our sins are forgiven, not because we've earned that forgiveness by being good and doing lots of religious things, but because we trust in the effect of Jesus' sacrificial death. I don't know whether you used to sing this chorus as I used to. I stand before the presence of the Lord God of hosts, a child of my father and an heir of his grace, for Jesus paid the debt for me. The veil is torn in two, and the holy of holies has become my dwelling place. That is where I belong, because Jesus paid the debt for me. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the jewel in the gospel crown. But there are other jewels as well. And the letter, to James, uh, letter of James is there so that they might shine just as brightly. So for the next few Sundays, we'll be going through James. And um, I hope and believe it will give us a really practical understanding of Christian discipleship. That's what it's there for. Okay, we can be fairly confident that the letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus himself. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Stephen's martyrdom had dispersed the infant Christian community to various different places. And if you want to read about James' influence and the kind of, in, uh, kind of authority that he had, um, when you get home, turn to Acts chapter 15, read the story of the Council of Jerusalem, and you will hear how James, it was James who summed everything up, it was James who drew a line under everything, and it was James, really, who presided over that Council of Jerusalem, a very crucial moment in the church's life, deciding on how much the Gentiles were going to be asked to take on um, of the Jewish faith when they came into the Christian community. Okay, <clears throat> now if you've got your Bible open, will you turn please to page 1213 and we will have a look at the passage that Janet read to us. What I really like about James is that he wasn't a man to stand on his dignity. He was a blood relation of Jesus himself, but in the very first words of the letter, he describes himself, he introduces himself simply as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, in Paul's letters, we're used to following long sentences, long, somewhat complicated arguments. James is different. I use the Tyndale New Testament commentaries, and Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, says this, a clear and systematic progression of thought is difficult to find in James. He prefers to move from topic to topic. Now, that's not because he had a butterfly mind. It's because that is the way that Jewish rabbis preached their sermons. They went from theme to theme, sometimes connecting them with a play on words or an idea. Now, we find this may be confusing. So I want to give you some headings to each section. And as David was uh, saying earlier on, the general heading of these first 18 verses, as you see in the New International Version, is trials and temptations. More properly, I think, trials and Christian maturity. Trials and Christian maturity. See, it's not easy to live in the midst of trials and difficulties. It's even harder to be joyful about them. Listen to verses 2, 3, and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, that is typically James. <laughs> so you're finding life tough, he asks. Good, good. That will toughen you up and help you to develop the kind of strength of character you need to become mature Christians. A friend of mine um, was once going through a very, very difficult time in his pastorate, and a sweet old lady, and you know churches are full of sweet old ladies, and I love each one of them. I really do. A sweet old lady came up to him with a little piece of paper, and she put it into his hand, and he thought, that's a message of encouragement. And I'll save it when I get into the manse. So he went home and he opened up this little piece of paper. And on it were the words, if your strength fails you, when difficulties come, your strength is small. And it was a punch on the nose. And this is what James is saying. You're finding in life tough? Well, good. That'll toughen you up and help you to develop the kind of strength of character that you need to become a mature Christian. You see, we are actually under attack. I don't know um, whether you realize this, but the social agenda of most of the so-called opinion formers, and certainly of the media, is on a, a collision course with the gospel. You know the leader, don't you? The, the, the little newspaper that comes to us during the week that's, developed, that's uh, delivered through everyone's front door. Well, a little while ago, on the front page of the leader, there was the report of a complaint by various people about the teaching program which our own youth pastor shares with David Sprouse, the pastor at uh, Cookfield Baptist Church, called Lovewise. It was attacked on the grounds that it presented Christian values to young people. Because with others, Josh has been going into the local secondary schools and explaining how Christians see difficult moral questions. Specifically, they've been championing the 
right to life of the unborn child. And because of that, they've been accused of indoctrination. How scandalous that anyone should dare to express a Christian point of view. Now, this should come as no surprise. You remember how Jesus said, and it's recorded in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So how do we react when things get tough, when we're under attack? James says we should be glad because this testing of our faith produces perseverance. Perseverance will help us to be spiritual and mature, and that is what is important. Okay, verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, the concept of wisdom is a very familiar one in Bible terms. It would have been very familiar to James readers. In the Old Testament, it's actually personified in the book of Proverbs, and there's even a kind of hidden relationship between wisdom and Jesus because it's claimed that wisdom was there at the creation of the world. So it's easy to understand the need for wisdom. Most of us, however, feel very lacking in that area, don't we? Well, James has an answer. Do you lack wisdom? Ask God for some more. Ask God for some more. But remember, he says, you must ask in faith. So what does that mean? Well, Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, once wrote to a discouraged friend, I will not say, have greater faith in God, but I will say, have faith in a greater God. I will not say, have greater faith in God, but I will say, have faith in a greater God. It's very easy, isn't it, to berate fellow Christians in a kind of discouraging way. You're trying to be encouraging. You end up being discouraging. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. You've got to have greater faith. So where do I get that from? No. It's faith in a greater God that matters. And this is what James is saying here. He's saying God is generous. He isn't stingy. He gives without finding fault. But of course, he's careful to whom he is generous. It's no good anyone who constantly flip-flops from being sure of his existence to being confused about whether he exists at all, expecting their prayers to be answered. That's not to say that we should be ashamed of our doubts or we shouldn't ask questions. It simply means that prayer for our prayer to be of any use we must be confident of God's willingness to answer, even if it's not the answer we want. Okay, verses 9, 10, and 11. I'm sorry we're going through this so quickly, but if we're to finish James in reasonable time, we have to make haste. Um, there's no reason at all why you shouldn't come back to verses 1 to 18 during the week. Please, please, please um, do that. And if you want my notes, you're very welcome to them. Verse 9. 
The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, why on earth should anyone feel proud of being poor? What James is talking about here is not the arrogance or self-importance of pride, but the joyous pride of the person who values what God values. And why should a rich man pride himself in humility? Because his real wealth is not counted in pounds and pence, but in the fact that sinner though he is, he has been loved and redeemed by God's one and only Son. See, what James is doing here is this. He's encouraging both rich and poor in the Christian community to remember that the sole basis of their, confident is the fact, their confidence is the fact that they belong to Christ. Where do we have our confidence? In our status? No, says James. Put your confidence in the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. The poor believer, insignificant and of no account in the world, is to rejoice in the fact that he is one with the, the Lord who has been exalted to the highest place in the universe. You remember Billy Bray, who used to dance down the street, shouting, I'm Billy Bray, I'm the son of a king. And... The rich believer, well off and secure in his possessions, with much greater status in the eyes of the world, must remember that his only lasting security comes through his relationship with Christ, the one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who was despised and rejected of men. In other words, what James is saying here is that both Christians, both rich and poor, must look at their lives not from an earthly but from a heavenly perspective. Okay, let's make progress. I'm going to go down to verse 15. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We've already thought about the way Christians face opposition from human adversaries. Now we need to spend just a moment thinking about spiritual opposition. And spiritual opposition, friends, is much more subtle and much more dangerous. Verse 12 says that if we stand up under trial, we will receive the crown of life. And that's a wonderful incentive to be holy, but practice is much more difficult to come to terms with than theory. And one reason for that is that every day we are fighting 
a spiritual battle. Sometimes people say to me, I don't know what's the matter with the church. It's full of grumpy people all disagreeing with one another. It's so difficult. I have a sister who is an elder in a United Reformed Methodist church. And they're really, really finding life difficult in in putting the two together as a united congregation. They really are finding life difficult. And she says to me, "Why, why is life in church so difficult sometimes? I, 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 I thought it was supposed to be, you know, the apotheosis of, of, of happiness and, and, and unity. And, and Now, when you go into a hospital, what do you expect to find? People full of health and strength leaping around? No, you expect to find sick people. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Of course, within the Christian community, you're going to find broken people. Here's one of them. Of course. Of course you are. But that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. Broken people can be mended. And another thing that is true about the Christian life is that we are constantly under attack. If you feel under spiritual attack, you really ought to feel quite encouraged. Because as it's been said on so many occasions, why should the devil spend time on someone who is of no threat to him whatsoever? Why should he bother about the people who make no effort, who are of no significance? If you feel under attack, as James says, be glad. Because not only is perseverance bringing you to maturity, but it's evidence of the fact that you're a target. And if you're a target, you must be of some significance. The devil doesn't waste his ammunition. Now, we all know about temptation, don't we? As a young person, one of the verses I was encouraged to learn by heart was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above that you are able to bear, and when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Yes, good advice. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That is all very well, and again, practice is much more difficult to come to terms with than theory. You see, James explains what's happening. God is never the source of temptation. Of course he's not. We know where it comes from, comes from the pit. But we can't simply blame our spiritual enemy. J.A. Bengel, a 19th century Bible scholar, said this, the suggestions of the devil are not dangerous in themselves until we make them our own. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's the point. That's when the danger signals should flash and the warning hooters begin to sound. When we accept what our spiritual enemy is saying, when we believe the lies he tells. No one can escape temptation, and temptation is not sin, but we can avoid making temptations welcome in our mind. As the old Chinese saying, at least I've been told it's an old Chinese saying, says, no one can stop the crows from flying over your head, but you can stop 
them from making a nest in your hair, or in my case, in your beard. I said that spiritual foes are much more subtle and more dangerous than human ones, and so they are. And verse 15 shows what havoc they can reap. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to death. Uh, It gives birth to sin, and when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. So then, 16, 17, and 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he has created. Now, living as a faithful Christian is not easy. We have our own old human nature constantly to deal with. We have the opposition we've seen from both human and spiritual adversaries. But we mustn't lose heart because God, our Heavenly Father, the source of every good and perfect gift does not change. And the best of his good and perfect gifts, as verse 18 says, is the fact that he has chosen to give us birth through the new birth, through the word of truth. And that means that we are actually the first step in his new creation. And quite honestly, I can't think of anything more thrilling or exciting than that. Amen.